0: Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities Podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities Podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, I'm Jeffrey Mason, researcher at the Charter Cities Institute. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Scott Beyer. Scott is the founder and CEO of the Market Urbanism Report, a media company dedicated to advancing a free market, classically liberal approach to urban issues. He's a roving urban affairs journalist based in New York who writes regular columns for Governing Magazine, The Independent Institute, HousingOnline.com, and other publications in addition to the Market Urbanism Report. He is also the author of the upcoming book, Market Urbanism, A Vision for Free Market Cities. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you, Jeff. So to get started, can you tell us what is Market Urbanism and what is the Market Urbanism Report?
2: Okay. So market urbanism is an ideology that calls for uh, crossing free market economic policy uh, rooted in the classical liberal tradition into uh, city issues specifically. And market urbanism report is a, uh, is a think tank that I own um, and operate that is uh, dedicated to advancing the market urbanism idea. So I started it a couple years ago. Have uh, several employees, and I'd say it's a it's a weekly blog, and a uh, we have a podcast, and I'm looking into launching a video series, and we have several social media threads uh, accounts that with a 50,000 person combined following, and so the goal of the organization really is just to advance the market urbanism idea.
1: Cool, as you mentioned, it's, it's sort of rooted. The idea is rooted in this sort of classical liberal free market tradition. And I sort of want to dig into a little bit the relationship between sort of the market urbanist community and sort of the the traditional free market crowd. And you recently shared on the Facebook market urbanism Facebook group in his blur in a blurb for your upcoming book, Randall O'Toole, land use and transportation scholar at the Cato Institute, somewhat of a boogeyman, I think, within the urbanist community, writes. And I quote, market urbanists claim to believe in free market outcomes, but when the results of free market processes differ from what the market urbanists think they ought to be, they are as willing as any other central planners to use the power of government. Scott Byer isn't as bad as some of the market urbanists, but he is overly enamored with increasing urban densities. So that's sort of one view of the traditional free market crowd. But conversely, you also see this sort of pro-market urbanist crowd. With folks like recent podcast guests Ed Glazer, institutions like the Mercatus Center, the Manhattan Institute are kind of aligned with this market urbanist approach. Can you talk a little bit about the, the tensions between market urbanists and and sort of the traditional sort of free market community? Who's how do things stand and in, in sort of the battle for
2: ideas there? Yeah. So um, the well, my, speaking about my audience specifically, it's very, very, almost radically so uh, diverse. From a partisan perspective and an ideological perspective, it's actually amazing. Really, like I've run polls on my Facebook group about what do they What do people on the group identify as um, politically? And it's all over the charts. You'll get like half of what you would say are right wing ideologies, like libertarianism and conservatives, and then half, like literally half of them, will be like DSA, progressive, liberal. And so, what's going on there is a lot of people who like the urbanism aspect, tend to be on the left. And then the people who like the market aspect tend to be on the right. But at the end of the day, if I was to describe a core audience, it would be the types of organizations you just described, like Mercatus, absolutely. A lot of self-identified market urbanists are at the Mercatus Center. And so that's kind of a groundswell there. Manhattan Institute, same deal. I would say a, a typical follower would be like A young libertarian who lives in a city and is very disenfranchised, like frustrated and um, dejected about the state of their city and just the way that the government has has um, botched certain things. And then so I think like the Randall O'Toole crowd. And by the way, he is a friend. We've been friends for a while. And and he was actually helpful to me very much when I was first getting started in my journalism career. But yeah, I think the old school libertarian, like say the the boomer generation libertarian, is probably more oriented to ruralism and suburbanism and sprawl and roads. You know, I'm not against any of that necessarily, but uh, I don't think it's a market outcome, um, or I think things would be developed differently in the United States if we if we followed true markets, and so he and I just have kind of like a, a generational divide there, even though we both call ourselves libertarian. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Is there one city that you think best exemplifies the market urbanist approach? Or if there isn't sort of one go-to example, this could be anywhere in the world that you'd like to go to, what cities might be featured in, in sort of the market urbanist grab bag, transportation from city A, the zoning of, of city B, and, and so on?
2: Well, I could go in a lot of different directions. I mean, with that, I think in the US, there's not anything that's really all that close. You could find specific aspects of of different cities like Houston is probably the most liberalized and really metro Houston is probably the most liberalized land use model, the closest thing. And I view Houston as a success in some ways in that it's extremely fast growing, and yet it has managed to stabilize home prices and so they're you know, kind of that that elastic, they've allowed themselves to have an elastic market that uh is is kind of edging towards the market urbanism model. Other examples would be uh, and I'm just kind of spitballing because they're very specific from place to place, but uh I look at like the private jitney or collectivo industries in various, particularly developing world countries. And by that, I'm talking about, like, for example, when I went to Mexico City, there's like this little private bus bus network of what we would call jitneys and what they call peseros that are have really cheap fares, and they typically get around the get the working class around, and they um, they complement the public systems. And so that sort of free market oriented transit you will find all over the world, and we, I think, you would have them in the United States but we have very protectionist regulations that prevent this sort of thing from happening. So on the transportation end, you've got that. I think, uh, you know, as, as far as like uh, the housing aspect of it, I w- I would have to travel the world more to know exactly who has done the free market version. But um, I would look at a place like Singapore, for example, as uh, you know, they, it's not a private sector system, But they have incentives in place to for for the government to build a lot of housing and build at very high densities, and um, they've managed to stabilize prices more than a lot of competing Asian cities. So um, it's kind of like little bits and pieces. You can look at different private cities around the world, Gurgaon, India. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Private city on the outskirts of New Delhi that. Basically, just allowed very liberalized land use and allowed a lot of corporations to come in and build whatever they wanted. And so it's, it's little specific examples like that where um, you'll see liberalization in various aspects of city administration. And then what follows is a lot of private sector activity.
1: Yeah, we actually have a there's a post on our website about Gurgaon, India. So I, I encourage folks to go give that a look. So in addition to sort of writing about market urbanism generally on uh, the report, you also have a specific proposal for what you call market urbanism zoning. Could you talk about that and sort of how that in, in practice would, would differ from the kind of zoning that we have now? And, and what are the problems with, with the need to be fixed with zoning?
2: Well yeah, market urbanism zoning focuses less on regulating, like having set regulations for a specific land plot, and more on what the um externalities from the land would be. And so to contrast this from traditional zoning with traditional zoning, particularly what they what we call Euclidean zoning here in the United States is we separate land uses, we separate retail from residential and office and so forth. And the idea is, it's kind of the cost benefit of that thinking is kind of inexact. It's like we, you know, we say, well, we, of course, we need to separate retail from residential because retail makes a lot of noise and it brings a lot of traffic and so on and so forth. Market urbanism zoning would look at the specific externalities that are coming from a very specific uh, uh, land use and say, we're going to allow this by right, but if it creates certain externalities, you either need to address those externalities in some way, or maybe it just won't be allowed. So a specific example, say you, you are a bar owner who wants to open in a residential neighborhood. Under a Euclidean model, that would just absolutely be outlawed. Under a market urbanism zoning model, it, it might actually be allowed under some circumstances. So if, you, um, if the bar is making a certain amount of noise or is expected to, like to um, break the laws for, for decibel limits, you could get in some sort of Paguvian negotiating tactic <clears throat> where you pay the, the people who are going to be impacted by the noise a certain fee on an annual basis. And they can agree to to accept that fee in exchange for allowing the bar, or maybe the bar can can build can like uh, add certain insulation or various other as, uh, building code aspects to the building to prevent the noise from permeating out into the street. And so it, it's rather than outlawing things on an as is basis, actually allow things on a buy right basis, and then address the externalities in in a way that incorporates market pay market-based payments or something else
1: we uh, we love a cosian solution yeah absolutely so while we're talking about land use and and maybe suboptimal land use i know something that market urbanists like to talk about a lot is is parking and sort of among market urbanists i think the conventional wisdom essentially follows that too much space in american cities has been dedicated to parking and that's caused considerable economic damage and that, that parking generally where it's provided should not be free. But at the same time, it's I would wager that a majority of Americans would not be happy if their parking was was no longer free. How would you go about, as someone who sort of writes for for the for the public, you go about shoop pilling, you might say, thinking about the godfather of parking economics, Donald Shoop, how would you go about selling Americans on a sort of more, more market version of parking or other market-based mechanisms like congestion pricing, toll roads and other sort of market urbanist favorite policies.
2: Well yeah, it, that's a lot of different things and it, I think it just depends on the situation. Probably the the example where parking the parking issues become most dramatic is if you live in a single family infill neighborhood, you know, like close to an urban core, you're probably already having um Like if people don't have on-site parking for their homes or don't have a lot of it and they're, they're spilling over onto the curbside, you're probably going to have a lot of parking congestion. Like I know that in a lot of outlying neighborhoods of San Francisco, you actually have to like cruise for five to 10 minutes to find parking on a nightly basis. And so that would be a very inconvenient thing to have to live with if you're a resident there. And so what SHOOP has proposed, and I agree entirely is have a paid parking permit system for curb space. Uh, Because what ends up happening in a lot of these neighborhoods is people will own three to four cars and they'll just use it as storage. Like they'll use the curbside as storage and they seldom even use the cars because they don't want to lose their space. And so I think if you had a paid market-based permit system, you you would buy the rights to a specific curb spot and you pay a little bit more Per year, but you have the convenience of actually knowing you'll be able to park in front of your house, and it'll disincentivize you to own multiple cars that you never use. And so, I think it's um it's a way to pay for the services that you use, and um, prevents the tragedy of the commons situation of having um everybody use a space for free.
1: But you also have the right to tell away the jerk that parks in front of your house and, and takes your spot.
2: Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, it, and we do have, like, you'll see this in different cities, like Washington, D.C. I've seen it in and, and various other cities where you will have curbside in residential areas that say it's for permit, or, permit or neighborhood residents only. The problem with those programs is they're very, very underpriced. Like, I don't know the specific situation with DC, but I've, I've read about examples where you pay like $25 a year for the right to, to have your car permitted. And it, it's like, that's, uh, that's extremely undervalued. And so I think the way a market urbanist looks at this is we, we want actual market economics to be, and pricing to be applied to what really amounts to valuable real estate. Like, you know, think about if you're in a a very wealthy neighborhood, say in Brooklyn, you know, people with disposable household income would pay potentially 10 to 15,000 per year, I could imagine, for the right to park right in front of their house. And uh, that's not only market economics at work, but it's also would be very good for the city from a revenue standpoint.
1: Absolutely. So while we're talking about how to best utilize very valuable land, Let's talk about hong kong's metro system I, I think you probably know where i'm going with this so hong kong's private uh, public transportation company mtr is, is famous in part because it is one of the few major transit systems in the world that not only generates a profit but generates uh, huge profits prior to the pandemic it re- regularly generated annual net profits in excess of two billion dollars and in the first half of this year alone it's already generated profits of over 340 million. By comparison, every major transit operation in the United States is unprofitable and requires substantial subsidies to operate. And part of the Hong Kong system's profitability has been attributed to what's called the rail plus property model in which MTR, the company operating Hong Kong's transit also owns and develops property above and adjacent to its stations. So I, I can think of some pretty horrific land use intensity around metro stations here in, in, in D.C. and some of the surrounding suburbs, which could maybe be improved under under this kind of model. Although, truthfully, I, I have my doubts about, I would have my doubts about WMATA's ability to, to execute on that. But why hasn't this model been more widely adopted in the United States, and would it work if you think it was tried here?
2: Yeah. So why hasn't it? Well, first off, I, I will say that I'm I am very familiar with MTR, and in fact, I have a book on market urbanism coming out in a couple months. And one of the chapters, I use Hong Kong MTR versus New York MTA as a study in contrast because they're they could not be more dissimilar in just how how they're run. But so I think okay, so the secret sauce to Hong Kong MTR, I'd say first and foremost would be that. It began as a fully public entity and then once it proved profitable, they actually went public and on, on the stock exchange and sold 75% of their shares to investors. So already, like, I think that is key because basically what you're saying is that 75% of it is is, is owned by private investors and that is going to change the entire incentive structure because... Once you have private investors who have like voting power in the, within the corporation, and obviously they're profit-minded, and that's why they're buying the shares in the first place, it's going to change the entire just viewpoint of how you need to operate the system. And so moving, moving on from there, now that it's a, it's a public-private uh, venture, you have... Yeah, you have a you have a bus system and a subway system, and then you have a lot of land holdings around those transport spines that MTR also owns. And there is a very much of an incentive to develop those as densely and as profitably as possible. The profits from the from the um, it's really a value capture strategy, like the profits from the private development get sunk back into the rail system. And then having a really good rail system that's well-funded restores and increases the financial viability of the developments. So it's kind of a feedback loop. Another aspect there would be if you build a bunch of housing and retail around transport lines, then you have a lot of people who then want to use the rail. So it's a a constantly self-reinforcing feedback loop between the land use and the transit why don't we use why don't we do this in the United States? I'd say it just has to do with the fact that our MTAs and our SEPTAs and our BARTs are not 75% privately owned. We do not have investors really pushing the line and saying, hey, let's let's get as much profit in this system as possible. Government agencies, they don't have the incentive to be profitable or to be competent. And so what we have is situations like New York MTA does actually own a lot of land around its system. So does New Jersey Transit. So does BART. I mean, they, they have land plots around their system, but they do not develop them densely. And again, because there, there's no incentive to. And I think also to be fair, they have at times tried to, and there's just a lot of nimbyism in those localities against building densely around transit.
1: Do you know, in the case of MTR, are they still subject to sort of the zoning regulations or whatever other kind of building regulations would apply elsewhere? Or do they have any kind of special exemption?
2: I don't know off the top of my head, but uh, Hong Kong is actually a pretty tightly regulated place. I think they, um, they regulate more than they need to. And a lot of their land is subject to not being developed at all. So, If anything, the fact that MTR is still a political actor and a government agency by some level of ownership, they probably have development rights that non-government actors would not have. But I I don't know the specifics.
1: So let's stay with rail for a moment. Uh, You've previously written about how the American freight rail system is world-class. Why are we so good at freight rail?
2: Well, I think a lot of it is just priority. Like we... um, we used to have obviously we built a pretty robust rail system just from a from a track level uh dating back to the 1800s we had land grants that that enabled private operators to build track all all over the country so that was a good smart early decision of just establishing the right of way to build the infrastructure but as time went on and, and as the the automobile started to uh, dominate mode share through the 1900s, passenger rail began to really struggle. Freight rail, maybe not as much, but it, it was struggling as well. And we made political decisions really in the 1970s to give priority to freight rail over passenger rail. And then another thing that we did was... Um, in the 1980s or actually i, I want to say the late 70s under jimmy carter we deregulated the industry um and, and so it it used to be there was talks of nationalization back in the 70s and we actually went the opposite direction and deregulated and had certain anti-monopoly policies in place as well so there's a relative diversity of rail of freight rail operators around the country and a lot of it is very regional like um you know, in, in Texas, you'll get well. In Texas, you get a lot of a lot of different operators. But on the East Coast, it's more of like a CSX and uh, Norfolk Southern, I want to say. And then on the once you get out west, you've got more BNSF and Union Pacific. So um, there's a lot of diversity and and competition within the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that in my mind is why it has done so well.
1: So to, to sort of follow up on this, uh, there's a recent post on Matt Iglesias' newsletter, Slow Boring by Eric Goldwyn and Jonathan English, that noted that 97% of the route miles operated by Amtrak are owned either by one of these freight companies or by a local commuter rail system. So how could this problem be be overcome so that Amtrak, or perhaps a, a truly private inner city passenger rail service, as I imagine you might favor, would attract riders and be profitable?
2: Yeah, well, that is in fact the problem. I mean, I, I think they're spot on there, is that We've decided to give priority to to freight rail, and in fact they they own a lot of the um, they own a lot of the track. In some cases, state governments own the track, and they're giving priority to freight rail. And I think there's a lot of bureaucracy about ever reversing that. But one um, exception to this is that Amtrak actually does own a lot of the track along the Northeast Corridor, and the Northeast Corridor, in my mind, is. Is the main area for for passenger rail to begin with, you know, and that's where you look at Amtrak and you think, well, there's not a lot of excuses here because you do own the track and um, you haven't really you haven't really like produced a great service out of this. And uh, I actually just me and my uh, my staffer Ethan Finland just co authored an article about how that track ought to have what what we call open access, which is the idea of multiple passenger rail services. Uh, competing on the same track with the competitors being able to lease the track space from Amtrak. Like, let's open up the industry and see who wins.
1: Are you optimistic about this happening anywhere?
2: It's tough to say. I mean, I I think Amtrak has been very protectionist. So um, no, not really. But you'd be surprised. I mean, there's a lot of in in the theoretical sense there's a lot of private industry that does want to serve the northeast corridor with rail. I mean Elon Musk has been talking about it with his tunnels and uh Virgin the, the company Virgin which does all kinds of transportation in in um the UK and elsewhere in Europe, they want to operate on the northeast corridor as well and they even have a testing site in West Virginia to try to to try to test out the maglev concept. And so it's like in a, in a theoretical market-based system, private operators would absolutely already be serving this area. But in the political system that we have, you've got a, a one-trick pony in Amtrak, and I don't see them wanting to give up that power. Was there
1: a turning point for Amtrak? It was found that, I believe, in the early 70s, where it may have been on the right track, but then sort of ended up in its current state? Or has have we kind of always been on this path to where Amtrak isn't really good at at its core mission?
2: Well, I mean, passenger rail itself was on heavy decline, you know, really after post-World War II America, when we were subsidizing something else, uh, interstates obviously, and and automobility. And that's when passenger rail really began to struggle. And Amtrak was created out of those struggles as being like, this is our last grasp to to do passenger rail in the United States uh on an on an intercity level. And I don't know that it was ever really that good. You know, I wasn't living back then, so I can't use a frame of reference. But as long as I've been um, studying the issue, it seems like Amtrak has always been a, a political battle between um, how much it should get funded. And it's it's never really solvent. So that's part of the problem. And it's always, it's always required, like, relying on political funding. And then, obviously, the service itself is not exactly pleasant compared to intercity rail and other parts of the world.
1: So speaking of Amtrak needing support, Congress just passed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure package, some of which that is for rail, which I believe you've, you've written critically about. So without, without reforms to control costs for infrastructure, like reining in uh, NEPA and some of the other sort of major tools of, of what might be called vetocracy, do you actually expect this spending to have much of an actual impact? Is there anything in the bill that you're you're positive about? Looking through a a, a quick list of, of what's in there, lead pipe replacement seems like a big but maybe underappreciated part of it. Carbon capture support seems good, but a lot of the money going to these kind of things is is dwarfed by what's going to what you might call big ticket or, or traditional infrastructure: roads, bridges, rail, broadband, et, et cetera. So, what's 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 your assessments of the the infrastructure package?
2: Well, the thing that makes me against all this kind of stuff is, is I guess I see the private sector. I believe that the private sector would, if there wasn't a, a huge government subsidy in place, I think the private sector would step up and serve a lot of these needs. I mean, rural broadband would be an example. Like we have entrepreneurs who are trying to accelerate a race into space. And a lot of that, the reason for that is not necessarily just to hang out on the moon. Like it's, they actually want to, create a satellite system internet um, that can potentially traverse the whole globe. So it's like, I, and then the other thing is like high-speed rail. Um, I don't know if that's really a smart investment when you have, like I said earlier, private operators who, who are actually looking ahead of the curve and want super high-speed rail, like magleave technology. It seems like a lot of this stuff could potentially be obsolete by the time it gets built. And then I think the other, uh, and and this is more of like a political economy point, a lot of the, when you federalize infrastructure policy, the way our representation works in the country, a lot of it gets redistributed to rural areas, which in my mind don't have, like, I don't think the bang for your buck on infrastructure spending is going to be strong if you're building roads in rural parts of flyover country when you could be building infrastructure in cities that where the population and the GDP are actually focused. Part of the the hostility to federal s- infrastructure spending on my part is kind of like a libertarian uh, perspective of just, I think that smaller governments are going to spend more wisely than a federal government. But a lot of it is urbanist. It's just the idea that we should be putting infrastructure, we should be doing infrastructure investment. If we do it at all, it should take place in big cities. And instead, it's getting redistributed to what I see as being projects that have a low cost benefit ratio in relatively remote parts of the country,
1: yeah, absolutely on a different thread what is cross laminated timber, and why is that such a big deal for the future of construction
2: so cross laminated timber is um where they make extremely solid beams out of out of wood, which really wood in an in of itself is not that condensed of a um material but if you use machinery to condense it then it becomes apparently as structurally stable as concrete and steel different builders are using the cross lamination process to to get a uh, lumber that has the uh, structural sturdiness of concrete and steel and so therefore they are using it to build high rises and so we're seeing different timber towers popping up around the country as usual, the regulations are behind on this. They, um, a lot of cities won't allow timber frame buildings that are above four stories or six stories when in reality, timber towers can be built as high as steel towers are. I even read about a Tokyo project where they're, they're going to be building something like a, a 1,000 foot super tall using timber. So we'll look forward to that.
1: That's very cool. So other places have kind of been doing this for a while already?
2: They have. It's more of an Asian thing. I think they're more ahead of us than that. But uh, it does happen from place to place. Like I've heard about ones in Portland and Minneapolis, and I think Cleveland is building one. And then even in my hometown of Charlottesville, literally a block away from where I was living, we are building, in eight. I want to say, uh, either eight or nine story timber tower, timber office tower.
1: Is in terms of the advantage of doing this, is it just a cost thing or are there other benefits of building with this material over concrete and steel?
2: Oh, I would say the main benefit is environmental and just in multiple ways. I mean, some of it is that wood captures carbon. And then I think, I mean, a lot of it is where whereas steel and concrete actually emit carbon and they attract heat and, and they turn cities into heat islands that make everything hotter um, but also the extraction process, like you can, when you're getting, for example, steel is made from coal and to get coal, you have to extract from the ground and and take basically dismantle mountaintops to, to get the, the product to create coal. Whereas with uh, timber, you are planting trees and then once you cut those trees, you can replace them. So it's a less um, extractive and environmentally harmful way to... To produce building materials, and then I think beyond the environmental benefits, it's from what I understand, it's easier to assemble timber because, you know, with a lot of when you're um, when you're assembling a steel structure, you're having to use a lot of very specialized skill, like welders and everything, and and so it it takes a lot of labor to build a steel tower, whereas with wood, it's all it's basically just shavings. And, and having to use machinery to, to develop, to shape the wood the way you want to at the lengths you want to. But after that, it's sort of like just um, assembly. It's it's like almost pre-manufactured assembly. And so it's a much easier way to build a building than using steel.
1: That's very cool. And I'm looking forward to there being more wood skyscrapers. So if, let's talk about public housing for a moment. This is, this is something that you've written about a bit as well. Public housing in the U.S., I think, has largely been been a failure. I, mean, I, I think that's a pretty common view. But yet, in addition to the uh, traditional Yimby-Nimby divide, we've also seen the rise of the FIMBYs, public housing in my backyard. And, and these folks insist that public housing can be done successfully, not just on sort of a need basis, but on sort of a wider use for the general public basis. And often point to Vienna, Austria, as one case study of, of saying uh, this this can be done and it can be done well. As you mentioned earlier, although it's not quite the same as as Vienna, Singapore has has been widely lauded for its uh, sort of quasi public housing model. Is there a role for sort of general public housing in America and could it be done well or are there, there are better alternatives?
2: Well, I think it could be. I mean, the GIMBY in me is kind of like, well, we just need more housing in general. So Um, I'm not completely opposed to the idea of public housing. And if you were to do that, I think the the best way to do it, we're already seeing it to some degree, is um, for the local government to buy land um, and put some sort of deed in place that establishes it as land that is supposed to be used for affordable housing. And so there, there will always be an affordability component to this land and it has to remain a certain percentage affordable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that you could get some public housing out of that. I happen to think that there are any number of affordable housing programs that would work better than public housing, because again, you're dealing with that incentive problem and sort of the public choice flaws of having a government bureaucracy run your housing. The thing about Singapore, for example, is yes, the government does build and manage the units, but the actual ownership structure is um, is the households themselves own and sell the units when they want to. So you're getting once you put private ownership into the process, there is more of an incentive in place to actually keep the units nice. Another option, alternative that I think would be better than public housing is something like Lytech where um you use low income housing tax credit that's a tax credit that private developers leverage to build new affordable housing and then the, the 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 stipulations of receiving the credit then are that you have to keep the units affordable i've written about and studied a lot of litec projects i think they're tip- they're typically very good quality units that far exceed what you will find in public housing and then of course like i think the main market urbanism message is just Build a lot of housing everywhere and it'll be cheaper and you won't have as much need for government subsidy. I guess the, the challenge I would have for the pro public housing people is would you rather live in public in a government run housing complex over, say, a Litech project or having a Section 8 voucher where you can choose what, what development you want to live in, or generally just having cheaper private sector housing.
1: Bill baby bill. Exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about a, a topic that, given your audience's background, I, I think they probably have some interest. In, and I know some of our audience um, is interested in as well, and, and that's crypto. So mayor-elect of New York, Eric Adams, has said he's, he's going to take his first three paychecks in Bitcoin, joining Miami mayor Francis Suarez as sort of a booster for the crypto and, and, and broader tech industries to locate in their respective idi- uh, cities looking beyond just you know where tech startups are going to locate and where this kind of activity is going to be clustered, do you expect crypto and, and blockchain and these kind of technologies to actually have a tangible impact on how cities are operated in the near future? Or would you basically just sort of chalk this up to hype for now?
2: Oh, I think it's way more than hype. I mean, I'm very positive about these technologies. And um, I think the more that cities try to like not only incorporate this, but brand themselves as tech hubs, I think the more positive direction that is. And the thing is, is that it, it seems like this would be, this is getting more traction in the private city space, which I know is very much your wheelhouse. But I mean, like the, I want to say his name is Mark Lore and he's building the billion, the former Walmart billionaire who's building, wants to build a city out in the Nevada desert.
1: Telosa, yeah, I think it's called.
2: Exactly, yeah, Tolosa. He's talking about that running on the, on the blockchain and having its own currency. And I hear about a lot of different like SEZs. Um, what's the other one? Is it Liechtenstein that has all of its entire government operation is on the blockchain?
1: I know Estonia is very big on e-government. Yeah,
2: Estonia. Yeah. It seems like the the future of this would be more in those... Um, those special economic zones or charter cities or, or various uh, experimental communities than it would be in the bigger cities. But I'd say the more the better.
1: Yeah. So, so speaking of private cities and, and charter cities and, and SEZs, you've compared what are called municipal utility districts or MUDs, which are, are seen in, are common in Texas to charter cities. So, what is a MUD? Uh, what's been their, their impact on housing and, and urban development in, in Texas?
2: Yeah, so Oman is not um is certainly not a charter city in the fullest sense, but I would say it's the uh closest thing that we have in the United States. And I just gave a talk at the um at a private cities conference called Arch Agenda that, that basically encouraged all the, anyone who was watching to come open a private city in America and I think the Texas mud would be the best place to do that. First off, I, I think the reason for that is um Texas itself is a very hot economy right now. It's it's a far it's far more liberalized than much of the rest of America. And so a lot of corporations and people are already flooding into Texas and it's growing faster than almost every other state. So it's like that's kind of the main fundamental right there, is just that there's demand for living in Texas. But I think also there is a there is a utility model or a special district model that is particularly inducive to like private city formation. And yeah, that's called the MUD. And so basically the way it works is um, developers form, like they assemble land and unincorporated land and they float bonds to private investors. And then they're able to incorporate as a brand new city uh, and they just pay off their bonds by... Um, they, they use the bond money to build infrastructure and then they pay those bonds off by building homes and just paying and, and just paying the debt. But um, the beauty of being able to incorporate your own city in Texas under the mud model is that counties do not have zoning power. So you can that that already would like get me worked up is that you can go in and you don't have to have a zoning code if you don't want or you can zone it however you want for as much density. And then there's just more autonomy from like as far as uh what kind of transportation system you can run. So it's sort of like if you're if you're one of these whiz-bang tech type people who is hyper forward thinking and and all into the charter cities and SEC thing, you know, and say you want you want autonomous vehicle testing or or you want to test out blockchain or the metaverse or whatever it is that you're interested in, I think you could go into Texas. And kind of have autonomy from the larger state and federal government more than you would elsewhere. And they'll just kind of let you do what you want. And I, I think that's really what we're all trying to go for there. Now, granted, most most MUDs in Texas, and there's um, there's several hundred throughout the state, most of them are around H- Metro Houston, and a vast majority of them are not used that way. They're basic, they're they're just suburban communities basically. They have really tight HOA rules. Uh, So they look like anywhere in America. But I think the MUD, if you do want to think beyond that model and you do want to have the more, um, like I guess, libertarian approach to city building, the MUD would probably be the best model to use in the United States.
1: Is the MUD model, would you say that's similar to kind of what Disney had when they were first setting up Disney World?
2: It is. Yeah. I mean, and there's multiple examples around the country. Like I think um, every state in the U.S. has a special district model. And the extent to which those special districts are loose or not loose and grant autonomy or don't and are just easy to build or not just depends on the state. Like some states are more regulated. California, believe it or not, was able to have a private city. Irvine, California at some point, that has been wildly successful. And the owner of the company that built that city now says that this would be impossible to replicate in California because of all the regulations. And I think kind of the same thing with what you're talking about in Florida, Celebration Florida, was the city built by Disney. Since then, Florida has really cracked down and and actually um, become more nimby against this sort of thing. Arizona is very pro special district and, and pro incorporating new cities. Georgia is very good on this. Like a lot of the a lot of the cities uh, north, the little towns north of Atlanta are private communities that that are newly incorporated and have outsourced a lot of their government. So um, it can be done in other parts of the country.
1: Cool. So there are these little different little examples, both here and also major examples that you, you mentioned earlier abroad. Of places where market urbanism or at least some elements of sort of market urbanist principles are playing out well. These are all in sort of high income developed countries. Do you think market urbanism can work or, or work effectively in places where there's more limited state capacity, that the state can't provide sort of a baseline level of dispute resolution of some public goods? And, you know, in Sub Saharan Africa, for instance most cities are sort of sprawling outwards in slums because neither the state nor the private sector has the sort of either capacity or or the incentives to deploy the infrastructure, public services, electricity, et cetera, to support more density and, and more orderly settlement. So do you think there's sort of a baseline functionality of the state that is sort of a prerequisite for market urbanism? Or is this wrong? Can market urbanism work in, in these kind of settings?
2: Well, I will have a much better answer for you in a couple of years because I'm actually starting in early 2020. I'm embarking on a two and a half year world tour. <laughs> yeah. And I, I did something in the United States a couple of years ago where I lived in 30 different cities for a month each um, over a couple of years of time span. And I'm going to be doing a trip in, um, around the globe, living in 100 different cities for about a week each. Starting in Latin America and going through Africa and Asia, and then Asia will be the final year. Uh, so obviously, like more emerging, wor- uh, developing world economies, because I I want to be able to answer that question of uh, you know what is the future of urbanization? Because I think it's happening in those places more than it is in the U.S. and Europe. Those are the places that are really growing quickly. So I want to get a better sense of what is the future of urbanism in those places. How can market urbanism help? Like, you know, what, how, do the, how do those principles apply to what's happening? But I think the early answer, like the hypothesis going into this trip, is um, looking at places like, say, Prospera in Honduras, where they do want to build, uh, I guess, what they call that a Zed uh, that is separated from the Honduran government and um, is basically just a, a more experimental and new way of, of running a city government. And so I'm going to be going to places like that. And, and, you know, I'm hearing about 3D printed villages being built in places like Africa and various in Haiti and, and places like that. And so I'd like to uh, go and look and see how that's working and maybe get a better sense of can we have a new way of living that is divorced from what you described as a very dysfunctional, large state government's.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing the results of your journey. Uh, that that sounds very cool. So wh- while you were traveling to the 30 different cities in the U.S., was Milwaukee one of your cities that you stopped in?
2: I went there for a weekend during my Chicago style. Okay.
1: So I was going to ask, uh, I'm sure you saw Nolan Gray recently had a Best City in America bracket tournament. Milwaukee, somewhat surprisingly, beat out Austin, Miami, San Francisco, Minneapolis, Chicago, and New York to claim the title of best city in America in this bracket. What what's what's your explanation? Why why is why is Milwaukee the reigning champ for best city in America? But make the best case you can
2: I <laughs> have <laughs> no idea. idea. I have no idea because <laughs> I've been to all those other cities you mentioned, and that that's a tough one. I wonder if they like did some sort of marketing or like hijacked the poll in some way. I think
1: it made the Milwaukee newspapers before the the tournament was over.
2: Yeah, I mean, the th- I guess the best thing I can say about Milwaukee um, and and various other Midwestern cities because I actually just went to Cleveland this weekend uh, for a family wedding and was able to see a lot of Cleveland is that we don't have a lot of that kind of urbanism left. And what I mean by that kind of urbanism is like the old school Midwestern urbanism of a lot of brick warehouses, uh, very, very specific vernacular, like Midwestern four square vernacular and, and so forth. I guess what I also think of Midwestern cities as being is like they're not row homes the way you would find in Philly or New York, but they're very small lot, single family detached housing that was built in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and has a very specific architectural style. And so we have a shortage of that. Of To me, that's good urbanism. And um, we have a shortage of it around the country. It's not getting built in any way today. And so I think at some point in time, even though cities like that are declining now, I think at some point in time, they will refill because they've got good bones. And it's just a matter of As our population itself continues to increase through the decades, I would have to think that people want to reclaim those areas.
1: Especially when the sort of superstar cities, so to speak, are uh, not building enough to keep up with with demand.
2: Yeah. And they're they're so expensive. Yeah. So, I mean, like, if you can, um, especially in the era of remote work, like you're hearing about the rise now of Zoom towns where people get a good tech salary, but they just work remotely and they... They live in cheaper places than the San Francisco's and New York's. Like, You can't help but to think that places like Milwaukee and Cleveland and St. Louis would be highly competitive in that market.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So last question. Is the United States ever going to get cool East Asia-esque neon cyberpunk cities like Shenzhen, Seoul, Tokyo? Or will we ever get sort of the beautiful green solar punk cities? Noah Smith sort of nominated, recently nominated Taipei. As a real example of a, of a solar punk city, are any American cities going to look sort of substantially different than they do now in, say, 20, 50 years? Where in the world most excites you about the future of, of urban design?
2: Yeah, I follow Noah Smith and have seen posts of that nature. They're, they're always so, they're such cool photos, you know? Well, I mean, if, if we were to really decouple and unpack, like, like real zoning dorks, the way why it is that uh, those cities look that way. Well, I think you can start with the fact that they allow retail, like they don't have hyper-rigid use zoning. They allow retail to go up multiple stories. That's not allowed in U.S. cities. They allow a lot of signage and colors. That's often not allowed in U.S. cities. Like you, maybe we've got Times Square, but like generally speaking, it's you really have to go through a lot of bureaucratic hassle to put signage up in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. If you were to unpack it further, like, they have much more narrow streets in those cities. So it seems like more of an urban canyon, whereas in our cities, the state DOTs force roads to be really wide, even, even going through major city neighborhoods. So it's sort of like the, the, the whole urban model in the U.S. is so regulated and sanitized that you could, you could never imagine it happening here. Well, fingers
1: crossed, a mud in, in Texas tries to recreate Tokyo.
2: Hey, I'm, I'm all for it. That's, that's the future that market urbanists want.
1: <laughs> I think that's a good place to, to wrap up. Scott, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities Podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.